0: I love it that through the miracle of technology, we can see what Paul looked like. (laughs) It is fun to have those uh, pictures to kind of get you thinking in that direction. So it's a privilege for me to be here. Thank you for being here. I just love your praises and how you love each other. So thanks so much. And I'm really excited. Um, When I was first thinking about Galatians, I read it and read it and read it and studied and thought, it says the same thing a million times, <laughs> and I've got to talk about it for six weeks. So God was so good because when I got into these, these first couple chapters, I was so overwhelmed by the grace of God that I would find myself, without even knowing it, I, had, I would have gotten up from the desk and been walking around my house just thanking God, and I think, oh, where am I? And I'd run back to the desk, and then another wave of understanding what we sang about this morning, grace that is greater than all my sin. What better thing to study? I am so excited. I praise God for his work. So before we start looking at Paul and Galatians, I wanted us to look at ourselves. And I wanted you to think about the moment in your life When you understood for the very first time that all your sins were paid for by the death of Jesus on the cross. And some of you may think, well, you know, I kind of grew up in a house that taught me that and so I can't think of that moment. But I think if you think hard enough, you'll be able to think of a moment when you understood that indescribable gift, knowing that no longer did your sins own you. No longer were your sins master of your life. Think about what it felt like to have those chains taken off. You remember that freedom of having sins out of your life and replaced by the love and the forgiveness of your Savior. Jesus came to set us free. Look at John 8 on your verse sheet. He said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Paul tells us all throughout the book of Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, for you were called to freedom. And when we can remember what that freedom felt like when those chains were taken off, I want us now to put ourselves in the most horrible place you can imagine that somebody comes up to you and begins to wrap slowly some chains back around you. What if the freedom you experienced began to be overshadowed by the burden of your sins again? What if the sacrifice of Jesus Christ didn't seem quite enough and you Knew your future depended on keeping a list of do's and don'ts? And what if you returned to the bondage of your sins as if you never knew you had a Savior? If you were a member in the church of Galatia, this would be you. They had tasted freedom by faith in Christ, but there were people in their church called Judaizers who were sitting in their own pews, if they had a pew, were rising up and trying to tell them that Christianity was really not the answer, but that they would turn them back to Judaism and tell them that Christianity is just an extension of Judaism and righteousness by works. They taught Christ, they had a superficial faith, Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus the law, Christ plus works. To become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew. Now this church had met with Paul and knew the truth. And so fortunately for the Galatians and fortunately for us today... This guy named Paul wasn't going to sit by and watch this happen. And we can be grateful. We're here today understanding freedom in Christ because of the book of Galatians. I read this quote. Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect had Galatians never been written. Galatians embodies the teaching on Christian freedom which separated Christianity from judaism it's called the magna carta of spiritual liberty the battle cry of the reformation the christian's declaration of independence paul could write it because paul had learned this in his own life i read a poem that made me think about paul Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This was Paul's life. Paul came to rescue the churches in Galatia. And who knew what it felt like more to go from the bondage of legalism into the freedom of a life with Christ than Paul. And last week you studied him, the Jew of all Jews, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, a keeper of the Law of Moses, the first five books in our Bible, tutored and trained by the best, a keeper of every minute, little, silly rule that over the years all the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had written up. To unbelievable extent, Paul calculated his righteousness according to each of those silly little rules. He was wearing some really heavy chains. He was so zealous for these things that he drug men and women off to prison if he thought they were in any way claiming that this guy, this carpenter from Nazareth, he's the Messiah? I don't think so. And he nodded in agreement when Stephen was stoned in front of his very eyes for his faith in Jesus Christ. Paul was zealous for works of righteousness. In God's great mercy, you saw last week that Jesus came to Paul on the road to Damascus in a brilliant light. Paul was grabbed by the grace of God, and while he lay there on the ground, his chains fell off. The carpenter that he thought was detrimental to Judaism, who he thought was dead in a grave, was alive and talking to him. The man who he saw as a threat to his faith, was the answer to man's separation from God. And God chose Paul to be the one to tell the world about it. First, God had to train Paul into this idea of grace. Now, we sing about grace, and I love that you did that today. We read about grace. Paul really, truthfully, could not have understood what that word grace means. We take it for granted. He couldn't have understood what it meant. And so God had to take some time to teach Paul what that meant. Not to get to God through your own merit by trying to please God in the flesh. Paul had to be trained. It took over three years for that to happen. And I thought about that because over the years, all the different people who come from different churches into Christ Chapel, I love it. I love to meet them and hear what they've learned and what they can bring to us. But there have been many people who have said to me, you know, I was in a church my whole life and I never once heard the word grace. I can't even fathom that. And they come here and they're kind of blown away. And 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 it's slow. They're kind of hanging on, but I do these things for God, but I and slowly they kind of let their hands go and slow. They accept the grace of God and understand what it means to be free. Once we understand we can't earn our way to God, that word grace becomes very important. It made me think about John Newton, the slave trader. You all have heard about him. He really was responsible for the death of thousands of people, let alone the imprisonment and the slavery of thousands of other people. And when he came to God. That's why he had to write amazing grace. How sweet that sound of the word grace to save a wretch like me. And later he would say this, all I know is that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. That's what grace is. Paul wasn't there yet. He'd been indoctrinated, he'd been trained, he'd been tutored by the best uh, scribes and Pharisees, and they had all lost sight of the grace of God. With God's intervention, Paul would come to understand that righteousness is heavenly. It doesn't come from ourselves, it's a gift from heaven. We don't work for it, but in grace we are given it and we apprehend it in faith. And then Martin Luther says this, Whereby then we mount up above all laws and all works. I love that visual that Martin Luther shares. I read about a guy that went to heaven. He faced the angel Gabriel at heaven's gates, and the angel said, okay, here's how it works. You need 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me the good things you've done, and you'll get a certain number of points for each of them, and then uh, the more good you say, the more points you'll get, which when you get to 100 points, you get in. And the guy thought, okay. Okay, so the guy starts. I was married to the same woman for 50 years, and I never cheated on her once. And Gabriel says, that's wonderful. That's three points. (laughs) Three points? And the guy's kind of getting nervous. He says, okay, I attended church all my life and supported its ministry with my money and my service. And Gabriel says, terrific. That's certainly worth a point. <laughs> One point, the guy starts panicking. How about this? I opened a shelter for the homeless in my city, and I fed needy people by the hundreds during the holidays. Fantastic, Gabriel said. That's two more points. Two points, the guy said. At this rate, the only way I'll get to heaven is by the grace of God. (laughs) Gabriel said, come on in. (laughs) We have mounted up above all works because of the loving grace of God. This man, Paul, who was once enchained, was prepared by God to share this amazing grace He was stopped on his tracks on the road to Damascus, but he never was stopped again. Paul made it his life's mission to tell this amazing story, and he endured lots of hardship and persecution to do it. On your outline, this was his message, that God justifies us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not by any works of the law. This was a revolutionary message for the Jews because they had let their pride distance themselves from God and it was a revolutionary message for the Gentiles who didn't know how in the world they could get to God and even who in the world he was. What an incredible message. I want us to look again at Acts 13, 1 through 3, where Paul starts out to share this message. Acts chapter 13. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Maning, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. I want you to get your map out. Um, I think it's on the back of maybe your verse sheet. I've got so many pages up here. Okay, if you look on your map, you'll see on the bottom Antioch where this verse took place. And then you're going to see the four cities that made up the southern area of Galatia that this uh, letter is written to. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you, Mimi. And you'll notice that they they went first from Antioch to uh, Antioch-Pisidia. So don't get those two Antiochs confused. So started Antioch above Syria, Go up, you'll see Antioch, Pisidia. They also went to Iconium, to Derbe, and to Lystra there. And that's Paul's first missionary journey that he takes. I want us to look real quick. And what's fun is, this is what Ted's teaching on Sunday, so it's really fun how we're kind of in the same things. Um, Look at verses 38 and 39. This is when they're in the other Antioch. Here's what Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Here's his message. He's giving it. Lots of Jews and Gentiles in Antioch, Pisidia, come to know Christ, even though there's some persecution going on. He goes from there to Iconium. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there in Iconium speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miracles, signs, and wonders. Many Gentiles, many Jews come to believe in Iconium even though, again, there's lots of persecution. Then they go to Lystra and I'm sure we'll look at that story. But the people that were persecuting Paul in Antioch, in Iconium, follow him to Lystra. And you'll have to read that story later on. But they stone Paul, almost stone him to death, drag him outside of the city, leave him for dead there. God wasn't ready for Paul to go home. He had a task to do. He stands up, the disciples are around him, and he moves on and goes to Derbe. Look at verses 21 and 22 in chapter 14 they preached the good news in derby and won a large number of disciples and then look what they do next then they returned to lystra iconium and antioch strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith i don't know about you but i wouldn't be excited to go back to iconium where they just stoned me almost to death and threw me Paul and Barnabas were wanting to go back everywhere they went to make sure they're grounded in truth, get those churches established, and then they went back to home base in Antioch and shared with the disciples there the exciting news of how God's at work in the Jews and the Gentiles. But when they returned the Judaizers that I mentioned earlier immediately rose up and began to pervert the very message that they had brought. And I shared how they wanted them to become Jews, basically. If you were a Gentile, you wanted to be in the church, you had to be circumcised, they would tell you. If you were a Jew or Gentile, they would say to you, you're only righteous before God if you are bound to the Mosaic laws and practices and ceremonies. Faith in Christ was not enough to be justified before God. A perversion that was taking away their freedom. On your outline, this was the perversion that Christianity was an extension of the Jewish traditional system of works righteousness. And the Galatians were allowing themselves to be chained against to this bondage. And so immediately, Paul is sending a letter on the way. And I thought this was really interesting. When you read all the epistles of Paul, they always start out, and he, he shares a spiritual blessing, grace and peace to you, and uh, you know, a great praise about who God is. And then he shares a praise about the church. I want you to listen to some of them in some of his other epistles. The church in Rome, he says, I thank my God for all of you. Your faith is being reported all over the world. To the church in Corinth, I thank God for you because our testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. To the Ephesians, ever since I heard about your faith, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. To the Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you. I pray for you. To the Colossians, we always thank God for you. We heard of your faith in Christ. To the Thessalonians, we thank God for you, your work produced by faith, your labor by love. To the second letter of the Thessalonians, we thank God your faith is growing. We boast about your perseverance and your faith. I want to read what he wrote to the Galatians. Turn to Galatians 1, verse 6. He gives his opening spiritual blessing. But look at verse 6. I am astonished you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Were these other churches doing everything right? No. The church in Galatia was causing the gospel of Christ to be in jeopardy. This was serious business. This is the only epistle where Paul does not write a commendation to the people. He had a job to do. It was serious business. He's astonished. Is Paul astonished about the false teachers? Not at all. Guess who trailed him everywhere he went from those four cities? False teachers. They just dogged him everywhere he went. He's not astonished by them. He's astonished that they would so quickly put those chains of legalism back on around themselves and claim that to be another doctrine, claim that to be the truth. It wasn't a gospel at all. The gospel, they knew, was about faith in Christ. If you look at verse 6 again, we can read it a couple of ways. I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. The one could be God. The very God they think they're hoping to please is the one they're really deserting. But it can also be read like this I'm astonished you are deserting Christ who has called you in his grace. Both of those would mean the same thing. And I want you to circle the word grace there. That's what this book's about, that's what they're deserting. The grace of Christ. It's a lie, this kind of legalism. And isn't it true it is still around us today? This much time has gone by? If we don't teach the truth, I think we'd all be that way. Christianity is the only faith that is based on grace. Everybody else is based on works and earning your way to try to get to God. I was talking to a friend this week whose son went downtown this weekend... And they ran across a religious sect of people who had signs on themselves downtown. I don't know if they were walking on the streets or if they were in a building. I'm not sure. Anyway, one young man had a sign on, and it said, Jesus drank grape juice. If you're drinking wine, you're going to hell. Okay. Now, downtown Fort Worth, do do you think a lot of people came to God when they read that sign? (laughs) What a strange thing to focus on. Legalism is still alive. It does not bring us to God. Look at verse 6. Oh, we read that. Let's go on to verse 7. This is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, he would have put that word in there, an angel from heaven, because they believed the law was delivered by angels from heaven. So he's saying, even if an angel from heaven is going to bring you this wrong gospel, other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than the one that you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Strong words. They needed to hear those words. Martin Luther put it this way, and I just wrote it out. It's just so great. He says, how lightly do you suffer yourselves to be withdrawn and removed from Christ, who has called you, not as Moses did, to the law and works and sins and wrath and damnation, but altogether to grace. So we can still complain today with Paul that the blindness and perverseness of men is horrible and that so few will receive the doctrine. Of grace and salvation. Yet it brings all good things. Forgiveness of sins. True righteousness. Peace of conscience. Everlasting life. For those that are called of Christ. Instead of being chained to the law. Which brings sorrow. We gain the glad tidings. Of the gospel. And we are translated out of God's wrath. Into his favor. Out of sin. Into righteousness. Out of death. Into life. You can tell that Galatians was Martin Luther's favorite book. This is the message Paul's going to remind the Galatians about. So look at verse 1 where he first writes, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He opens his letter by saying, let's get back to the basics. Let me remind you of the message I sent to you and we can learn four things in here. On your outline, first of all, he begins by saying in verse 3, grace and peace. And those two things are the sum of all that belongs to Christianity. Grace and peace. And why is that true? Because grace, it's the source of our salvation, right? What's the result of that? Peace. Grace brings peace. And the two fiends that want to haunt us our whole life are our sins and our guilty conscience. And Christ vanquished both of those fiends out of our life. Grace and peace. Secondly, on your outline, Christ is God by nature. Look back from verses 3 to 5. He puts equality, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They have equal attributes with each other. He also does that in verse 1, Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he's saying that both together are givers of grace, forgivers of sins, give us peace, life, victory over this evil world, victory over death and hell. Thirdly, we can see on your outline, salvation was the plan of both the Father and the Son. We cannot be delivered by our own plan. We just can't. People think they can. I, saw, I read something about Sophia Loren yesterday, who seems like a sweet person, but said, you know, I've worked hard all my life to be good, and I will not go to hell. That would not be nice. And she said, I'm as white as a white orchid. Where is she putting all her hope, though? And just who she is. She came up with the plan to be like a white orchid. We can't come up with those kind of plans. It isn't our will. It's the will of God that he decides to place his mercy upon us and love us. And Christ was a part of that by willingly laying his life down so that could happen. Look on your verse sheet at First John 4. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And let's read the verse above it. It also goes with this. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Remember when Jesus... That dark, awful night was in the Garden of Gethsemane in anguish, and he's crying out, and he's calling out to his Father, and he says, God, if this cup could pass me, if it be thy will, but if not, not my will, but thine, this cup of suffering on the cross, and it was God's will, and so it was Christ's will. And willingly, Jesus died. Together, they planned salvation. Together, they provided salvation. Together, they announced salvation. Together, they grant salvation to all who come in faith. Years ago, Ted was needing someone to fix a windmill in Comanche. How many of you have been to Comanche? Pretty many. He was in one of those old hardware stores, you know, with the cool wood floors that creak when you walk around. It has that smell, and there's giant bins and nails everywhere. There were men that kind of liked to hang out there throughout the day and play checkers and talk, and Ted was kind of walking up and down the aisle saying, I need somebody to fix this windmill. And so this man had been watching him and listening to him. He had on overalls and and, uh, probably lived right there in Comanche, and he said, where do you live? Well, Ted wasn't living there, but he said, well, I'll show you where this windmill is. And the guy said, I'll come by later today. So Ted was out there, and this, this old man in these overalls came walking up carrying a giant watermelon, which was like heaven to Ted. Carried this watermelon, set it down in the truck. Ted took him to the windmill, and the man was looking at it, and Ted said, can you fix this? And the man said, I reckon I can and he took his handkerchief out of his pocket and wiped this little brass plaque off. And he said, see that name there? That's me. He said, I built this windmill. And then they opened up the watermelon and had a great time. <laughs> they laughed because they knew he could fix it because he had built it. God knew he could fix us because he had created us. And together with this son, they came up with a way to do that. On your outline, number four, only Christ can deliver us from this worldly kingdom of evil. This verse says here, Christ, verse four, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And that means the satanic world system. When did that thing come? With the fall of Adam. When will that system of evil be gone? With the return of the second Adam, the sinless, perfect Adam. Look at 1 John 3.8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The moment you accepted Christ as your Savior, you were rescued out of the power of this dark domain. Look at the next verse. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then I love how Paul ends this part, verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. It's like he's thinking about the incredible truth of the gospel, and he says, glory, glory to you. And then he says, amen. And I found out that in a Cantonese Christian church, when they say amen, it's the most closely translated to the original amen that we see here um, in this text. And what it means is, with all my heart, this is what I wish. So every time they would say, glory to God, amen, with all my heart, this is what I wish, glory to God. This is what Paul's saying. So what would be the best way for these false teachers to win over these converts in the churches of Galatia? And the answer is pretty easy. Let's undermine the authority of the guy who brought this message. Let's undermine the authority of Paul. Let's discredit Paul. We'll discredit his message. And these would be their arguments. First, they would say, Paul's watered down this Christianity because he's a people pleaser. He just wants everyone to like him. So he's kind of watered down what the gospel is about. Uh, He's made it so easy that Jews who might be tired of trying to keep the laws... They'll say, I'm going this way. Or Gentiles who think, I can't learn these Mosaic practices. Then they'll come Paul's way. They thought Paul was just saying what men wanted to hear. And then secondly, they would say, he's not a legitimate apostle. He wasn't one of the original 12. He was self-appointed, self-trained, self-promoting. What right does this guy have to speak for God? And so for the next chapter and a half, Paul has to tell them what authority he does have so that the gospel would not be dropped in that church, so they would embrace it once again. Here's the facts, verses 1 and 2 that I read. Paul says he's an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. On your outline, Paul fulfilled the qualifications of an apostle of Jesus Christ. What was an apostle? Primarily, they would have been the disciples of Jesus who were trained by Jesus, and the word means ambassador, to be his ambassadors with a very specific job. The 12. That was their job. Later, oh, and they also had to be a witness of Christ, resurrected. The resurrected Christ. Later, the term apostle, you could see it in the New Testament being used for men like Barnabas and Timothy, but that word would have been translated more as messengers, and they were not called the apostles of Jesus Christ in the same sense that the uh, disciples would be. Here's how Paul filled those qualifications. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And Paul says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Paul did witness the resurrected Christ. He just did it in a very unique way on the road to Damascus. And then Paul was given, on your outline, his authority by God himself. We read that in this part here. He was given the same responsibility as the other disciples to share this news. And how do we know that to be true? Look on your verse sheet at Acts 9. This is right when he was blinded on the road to Damascus. He's taken into a home, and a man named Ananias hears from God. The Lord said to Ananias, "'Go.'" This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. It wasn't men who sent Paul on the mission. Just like the disciples weren't sent on their mission from other men, they were sent on it by Christ himself. Paul was also sent on a mission by God himself. Look at verse 11 in Galatians. And then Paul says, I want you to know the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You heard in my previous way of life how I persecuted the church, how I was advancing in Judaism beyond anyone else. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I didn't consult any man. I didn't go to Jerusalem to see those apostles who were apostles before I was. I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And after three years, after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. And I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles Only James, the Lord's brother. On your outline, Paul was trained by God himself. I thought it was neat to think about. The other apostles were trained by Jesus for three years. Paul was trained by Jesus for three years. And what would be... um, would be the chances that a guy like paul who struck blind on a road spends three years with god would return to meet peter and the other apostles and know the exact same doctrine that they knew and believed it the chances of that it couldn't happen unless the message was from god and it was his message lined up with the message christ had given the disciples If their theology didn't line up, do you think the um, other apostles would have let Paul run around planting churches? Absolutely not. They knew that this was a man given a divine calling from God. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. As for those who seem to be important, Paul says, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles as Peter had been to the Jews. God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter, was also involved in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. When they recognized the grace given to me, they agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. On your outline, Paul was accepted. By the apostles. And in those verses we can see why they accepted it. It says they saw that Paul had been entrusted to preach the gospel. They saw the work of God. They saw the miracles and the conversions and the life change happening around the life of Paul. And they witnessed that his ministry was equally as important as Peter's ministry. That's huge. It says they could see that. And finally, it says they recognized the grace given to Paul. And so they put out their hand of fellowship. And when they put out that hand of fellowship, and Paul took that hand, wow, what a work. What a work went out across the world together. The pleasures of Paul, and I added all followers of Jesus on your outline because this is also about us. We can tell Paul was not a people pleaser. He was the very opposite. And if we want to be used by God, we can't be people pleasers either. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. So I just thought of a couple things from Paul's life that we could strive for so that we don't fall into that trap of giving up the ministry and the work and the fellowship that God has for us in order to keep someone else happy or to look good before someone else. Paul first didn't please men, but he pleased God. Look on your verse sheet, 2 Corinthians. Paul says, we make this our goal, to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. In other words, whether we are alive or we are with him. It is our goal to please him. We learn what pleases God. We don't stray from it. It's in here. This is how we learn how to please God. And it becomes so important that we don't care anymore that much about pleasing men. These are love letters to us. Remember when someone sent you a love letter and what it did to your heart? When we fall in love with God and his love letters, we want to please him. We make that our goal as well. And secondly, we have to be true to the task that God has given us. Paul knew the task God had given him. He never strayed from it. Look on your verse sheet at Acts 20. Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What's his task? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. No human opposition ever detoured Paul. Never. He continued with his task. In fact, look over again at Galatians 1.10 for me real quick. He says, am I trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I not, would not be a servant of Christ. And that term there really means bond servant of Christ. If you were a slave back then, you wore that sign. Your master had a name or a sign branded on you. When Paul says that right here, he is saying, If that were true, why am I wearing the marks of persecution on my body if I was out here to please men? He wore the brandings that he belonged to Jesus Christ. We can know God's will for us, again, through his word and through prayer, and we can choose to focus on the tasks he's given us and not on man's approval. And here's how we do it in Hebrews 12. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Take our eyes off a man. Put our eyes on Jesus. One man said this, have courage to look up to God and to say, deal with me as thou wilt from now on. I as am one with thee, I am thine. I flinch from nothing so long as you think that it's good. Lead me where you will, put on me what raiment you will, and for all of this, I will defend you before men. Let's pray. Father, we have to praise you for grace and freedom in your plan and ask that you would teach us to always keep our eyes fixed on these things, that we would not miss the great ministries and the great way to share the compassion of Christ to those around us. We are so grateful for you, and we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. you, Lynn. We have just two weeks until the Becoming a Woman of Courage.